Ramble. Bada bing, bada boom. It's a mini sewed. G- give them that CW intro. Previously. <laughs> <laughs> Previously on Rotten Mango. Okay, you do it. You do it. Previously. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> he just said, uh, previously. <laughs> so if you guys didn't watch part one of the Candyman slash Willy Wonka murders, this one um, is part two. Obviously, watch part one. Otherwise, none of this is going to make sense. Um, I'm going to give you a one minute rundown for the people who did watch part one on Wednesday. But you're like, hold on. Wait a minute. I need a clarification. So we've got Dean Quirrell, infamous serial killer known as the Candyman, who actually started a candy company, gave free candy to children in Houston, Texas, and then proceeded to groom these said children so that he could later with his accomplices Elmer Wayne and David Brooks kidnap these same kids so that he could brutally torture them assault them and then murder them he buried them in his boat shed and now we are on to him burying them at High Island Beach because his boat shed is full how many kids has he killed at this point I have the number for you 14 children And it's all they all live in the same little neighborhood. Yes. And the two accomplices, David Brooks and Elmer, these are their friends. So they're getting paid $200, which is about $1,300 in today's money to bring Dean Coral, the ultimate nasty. He's like in his 30s at this point, by the way. He's like 32 at this point. And these these are they're still underage. Elmer and David Brooks are still underage. Elmer's actually 17 when he gets arrested. Jeez, that's so bizarre. Yeah, so they're bringing him their friends from high school so that this old dude, this 30, not old, but, you know, older guy can murder these kids. So that's where we're at. We've got David Brooks, the trio. The trio of murder is finally slowly starting to fall apart because David, you know, he's getting involved with his girlfriend. He's like, you know, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to spend all day with you guys. Like, this is a little weird, right? And now we are talking about how Dean Coral himself has a girlfriend. And if you watch part one, you're shook. You're as shook as me, okay? So Dean has been dating a woman by the name of Betty Hawkins during all of this for the past five years almost. So she's a single mom. She worked for the candy store, met Dean. They start dating and he was always really kind to her. That's what she says. He was never sexually aggressive to the point where they've never had sex before. She said that one time they were laying in bed together and she was like, oh, OK, like now it's going to happen. You know, it's going to be the intercourse time. Woohoo. But then he stopped and she was like, why? What's wrong? Like, did I do something? And he said, oh, I just don't feel like it. And they never had sex. And what was her thoughts on that? Her thought was that she liked it a lot. He was a gentleman because a lot of the times, especially in this era, you know, a lot of men would look at her a single mom and think easy. You know, she's an mm. easy girl. She mm-hmm. doesn't have any morals. Mm-hmm. And so Dean is like, no, I, I want to make sure that this is the right match. I want to make sure that you feel loved romantically first. And I the honestly, truth is the total opposite. opposite. Yeah. That he's like going around killing and raping people. Kids. Kids. Teen, teenagers. Teenagers. Yeah. Little boys. And so they would sometimes kiss and cuddle, but like he just wasn't really into it, she said. And she just really wanted to marry Dean. She was like, I think this is the man for me. Like he's so sweet. He has an amazing work ethic. And he, she even allowed her children to call him daddy. Is she just a little flaunt, like a little cover, cover up? I think so. For him? I think, I don't know if it's like a cover up or maybe she was going after him. So he was just like, I don't really know how to say no. So like, whatever. But that doesn't sound like his personality. Yeah. 
So maybe, maybe this was to like shut his mom up because his mom marries a little intense, uh, right? So yeah. he's like, mom, listen, I have a, I have a girlfriend. Her name's Betty. Mm-hmm. And maybe Betty was easy to not point out these things. Maybe she was really excited about having a boyfriend. Like that's kind of like the feeling that I get, right? And so she would constantly say like, I think it's time for us to get married. Like take the next step. And he would say, I just don't have money for that right now, you know? Or he would say you know, I just, um, I think maybe we should wait a little bit longer. So towards the end of this relationship, she actually starts seeing other men. She's like, you know what? Fine. If you're not going to just focus all of that energy onto me, I will get what I deserve. So she goes out, dates other men, and he finds out about it. And she was like, but he didn't care because he told me, and this is so romantic. She said, Dean told me that I just have to be sure that he's the one that I want. So I need to go out there and I need to see what else is out there. And I can come back to him when I'm sure. I just can't really think of a person saying that. I could never, if I found out that you were dating other people, I don't think I could ever sit there and say, you know what? Like, I want you to really be sure that it's me that you want. So yeah, yeah. go, go, go take her to Sugarfish. Go fucking, go eat Chipotle with her. You're right. Yeah. You need to go so see Dean what's out there. So Dean obviously don't care, but yeah. to her, she's like, wow, he is so patient, so, gentle, so gentle, so understanding. So amazing. And um, later on in hindsight, she said, well, I guess there were some things that were strange that we would only go on dates with our kids, like my kids would come. And I thought maybe that's like him just trying to be nice. It's probably because he didn't want to like make out with her, you know. And it's like, well, your kids are here, Betty. You can't do that while your kids are here, Betty. And oh. um, if not, if her kids weren't there, he would always bring David and Elmer, his two little teenage buddies. And I'm like, it's weird that you have teenage kids. But I thought maybe he's like a like a dad to them because, you know, a lot of kids, they don't have a good, strong father figure. I mean, neither do my kids. So she kind of made it sense, like made sense in her head. Now, Elmer has a conversation with his friend during this time. And he says, hey, Bruce, his friend's name is Bruce. Uh-huh. What do you think about being a professional assassin? And Bruce, he's the son of a preacher, says, a what? (laughs) (laughs) He says, like a hired killer, like for the mafia or something. He says, that's a silly question. That's stupid. I can never kill someone. Plot twist. Bruce is also a serial killer. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He got so shocked. (laughs) And he says, yeah, it's just dreaming. Just the way that we all do. So it seems like maybe they were in a hiring phase. Um, uh. This has been used a lot to, you know, indicate that maybe Dean was looking to outsource more now that David Brooks is kind of falling from his radar, is, you know, kind of slipping away from his grip and he mm-hmm. needs more boys. And, you know, Elmer and David, they can only bring so many friends at once to be murdered. They mm. need more friends. So then the next victim is Stephen Sikkim, who is 17 years old, and he was last seen leaving a party held in Houston Heights around midnight. This is a very intense murder. He was savagely blood on the chest with blunt force with a blunt force instrument and he was strangled and he actually was buried in the boat shed then one month later we have roy bunton who is 19 years old and he was an assistant in a houston shoe store and he was like walking to this little shoe job and he got abducted like he, he was lured into the car same thing happened he was tortured for days assaulted and then murdered and what's interesting about Stephen sickham and roy bunton is that they were never identified as victims by david or any David Brooks or Elmer or any of the accomplices, they were actually recently identified in 2011, like their remains. Oh, like they never told yeah. people that we killed these Yeah, people. so they never told the police later, like, oh yeah, by the way, like Roy Button, we know him, we killed him. So maybe they didn't know these people and it was just like another teenager walking by and they were like, hey, get in the car, we've got weed. 
I see. So they were identified in 2011. Is that not insane? So then we've got the 19th and 20th victim. We've got Wally J. Simono and Simono, and then Richard Hembry. And David told him to get into their Corvette Corvette. David Brooks was like, hey, get in my vet. Like, I'm going I'm to take you to a crazy party. Now, that night, Wally's mom gets a phone call in the middle of the night. She picks it up and someone just screamed, Mama. And then there was some background noise uh-huh. and they hung up the phone. So she was like, okay, like, is this, are they having like a party? Was it a disconnection? Like, what's going on, right? Now, Uh the next morning, Elmer accidentally shoots one of them in the mouth and the bullet exited through his neck. What makes this situation so disgusting? Accidentally shoot them. Like, he was waving his gun around, being tough. That's what he does a lot, according to David Brooks. He'll just like point the pistol around and be like, hey, do as I say, like, I'm a bad bitch. And the gun accidentally fired and he shot Richard in the mouth and the bullet exited through his neck. And instead of putting him out of his misery or getting him medical attention, which I highly doubt that they would have done the second one, but at least, you know, put him out of his misery because you have plans to murder him anyway. They didn't. They left them there all day. So Richard Hembry just bled to death until he was strangled at the last minute they were like oh you're still not dead it's been a full day like let me strangle you guys oh my goodness and they were buried also in the boat shed so they're just like trying to find room for these uh, the boat shed seems to be a safer place to bury these victims because you know the beach you have passerbys you have the chance that someone's going to see you whereas the boat shed people know that you go there and it's inside a shed so they're burying inside the shed so no one can see you doing all this digging. And then we have Willard Branch, who was 18. He was hitchhiking. He knew Dean and he knew Elmer. So he gets into their car and he was found gagged with his penis and testicles cut off in a plastic bag right next to him. So he was one of the victims that was emasculated and he too was buried in the boat shed. Then we've got Richard Kepner, who's 19, disappeared on the way to the phone booth, strangled, buried at High Island Beach. We've got Joseph Lyles, victim number 23, lived on the same street, as uh, David Brooks' dad. So this is literally like his next door neighbor. He's like, hey, get in the car. And they murdered him. So in the last 10 months, these three have killed at least 10 teenagers aged between 13 and 19. And the police are not freaking out? No, the police do nothing. So then we have the final move. So um, the first part mentions that this guy moves so much. He moves like five, six times a year, Dean. Um, he finally moves to 2020 Lamar Drive. Listen, I'm not a superstitious bitch, but like anything with 2020, I'm like, nope, not touching it. No more. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, so he moves into 2020 Lamar Drive and he takes a hiatus of killing between February and June of 1973. Just for like a couple months, he doesn't kill. Why? Why is he taking this break? I have the answer for you. So it's a combination of a ton of things. Elmer moved away. Elmer was like, I'm leaving. And he moved away and he tried to apply to be a part of the U.S. Navy. So a lot of the reasons why he moved away, he said he didn't want to, you know, be a part of this anymore. He wanted to distance himself from Dean. So it seems like both of his accomplices were like done with it. They're like, I don't want to kill anymore. I don't want to bring you my friends so that you can rape and torture them and then murder them. And then I got to help you dig their burial. Like, I don't want to do this. So Mm -hmm. he moves away. He applies for the U.S. Navy and he gets rejected because he had dropped out of high school. They said you need to at least graduate high school or like have a GED later intelligence tests will reveal that Elmer's IQ was actually 126 so he's a pretty smart dude well I don't know if IQ equals smart but you get the idea he was Mm. somewhat intellectual right now Mm -hmm. he goes back to Dean and he says and I quote I couldn't leave anyway if I did go I know Dean would go after one of my little brothers he always liked that one a little too much 
Oh, Elmer, Elmer yeah, has uh, little brothers. Mm-hmm. So he eventually came back after trying to leave because he was like, you know what? He's going to kill my little brother. Like, especially this one that I know that he's really into for some oh. reason. Very, very, like, alarming. The fact that that just, like, came out of his mouth so casually in the sense that it did, it was just weird. So then David Brooks, the other accomplice, he gets married. He belong gets married. So he gets his, you know, girlfriend, Bridget, pregnant. So then he propose it to her she mm-hmm. accepts and they're like okay well we should probably get our own apartment because all you do is like live at dean's place and that's a little weird like i'm pregnant and i don't really want to be around dean while i'm pregnant so he's like okay i totally get it so they move into an apartment outside of houston heights so he's slipping away elmer's slipping away and dean develops a hydrocell which is a water pocket in his testicle it's like a pocket of water. And apparently it's like an accumulation of fluids around a testicle. It feels like a f- small fluid like balloon inside the scrotum. It's smooth, mainly in front of the testicles. And typically it is painless and harmless and can go away. But if it doesn't and you keep it around, it becomes incredibly big and it becomes really uncomfortable and then eventually painful. And then you have to have an operation to have it removed. Your sex drive goes down because um, there is like this male fear of enlarging the uh, water bubble. You know, did a lot of research on this. <laughs> yes. And there's like a lot of discomfort on the testicles. Did you know that a hydrocell is not that uncommon? I know. <laughs> well, now, you know, now you have another fear. <laughs> he said a fucking hydrocell. <laughs> What's your worst fear? A hydrocell. OK, <laughs> so now, you know, so he had a hydrocell and he was probably in some pain and his two little accomplices are slipping from his little grips. So there was a bit of a hiatus. Now, Mary, the mom, she comes back into the picture at this point and she said, you know, around this time, Dean, my son, was having some strange thoughts. He was, uh, he, it seems a little suicidal. Like, I don't know exactly what it was, but he would call me and say things like, Mom, I'm in trouble. I'm leaving. I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to drop out of the picture. You know what? I'm just going to even, I'm going to overdose. And his mom would be like, what? What are you talking about? No, no, you can't do that. First of all, his mom really believes in reincarnation and was like, listen, eventually you have to learn how to live life in this life or another life. So why don't you just do it now? Like whatever you're trying to run from, you've got to learn how to handle it. And he just kept saying that he's dodging someone. And so she assumed that maybe he was dodging a debt collector. He had been recently really stressed out about how he was going to pay for this operation to get this little water bubble out of his balls. So maybe he had taken out a loan, gotten it operated, and now the loan collector is like, I fixed your balls. Give me my money. I'm sure that's exactly what they say. Pretty sure. (laughs) I should be a debt collector. (laughs) Just run around. I fixed your testicles. (laughs) Give me my money. (laughs) Now, this is when Betty says, I also noticed something weird, too. Who's Betty one more time? Dean's girlfriend. I know that it's chaotic. This is one of the most chaotic stories I've ever covered. So Dean's girlfriend, Betty, is like, I remember this time some weird shit was going down. He was telling me how he wanted to move to Colorado to be with his mom. And he was never a drinker. But every time I saw him, he was downing like just glasses of whiskey. And I was like, what is wrong with you? You don't even drink. And he was like, hey, I'm going to move to Colorado. And you know what? I'm going to I can't bring you right now because I don't have a job in Colorado and it'd be weird. It'd be like, hey, mom, here's my girlfriend. But anyways, I'm going to bring you to Colorado. I'm going to get things set up and we'll be happy there and we'll get married. And yeah, that's the plan. But you have to promise me something, Betty. No matter what you do, I'm going to go first. Remember, no matter what you do after I leave, you cannot tell David Brooks where I went. This will become a huge point of contention later on. So he says, you, no matter what you do, don't tell David Brooks where I've gone. Why is he running away from David? 
Right. I don't know. So maybe some people see it as, okay, like, was there something going on where maybe Dean wasn't the sole power holder in this dynamic? Or there is the question of, was he trying to set David Brooks up? Mm. You know, because I don't think he had any intention of bringing Betty to Colorado. Let's be real, because she even asked. She was like, "Okay, so like we're going to, you know, move and get married. And he was like, yeah, sure. And he would go to Betty's little sons and be, hey, aren't you excited to move to Colorado and I can make you a little sister? Like, it was just really odd. So she was kind of getting the idea that, okay, maybe am I ever going to get there? Like, is he just going to leave and then I'm never going to see him again? Mm. So there was more trouble in the little trio. So things were going south and Dean seemed to know it because Elmer said that he and David Brooks talked about how they had to kill Dean. They were like, we got to kill Dean. That's the only option. We don't like to kill Dean, but we have to kill Dean because otherwise he's just going to keep coming after us. He's going to frame us. He's going to tell the police on us. I mean, I don't have any more friends, you know? Mm. So then each time they would hype themselves up, huff some paint, and they would pass out because they'd huff so much paint. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's the most chaotic story. Like, what? (laughs) And then um, I guess maybe they'd wake up in the morning and like, you know how you get like morning clarity and you're like, wait a minute. Did I really talk about killing someone last night? Like, I'm not going to do that. So then at night, they would repeat the whole thing. thing. though. It's a thing. You get way more motivated at night. Yes. That's how I am with like regular stuff too. Like at night, I'm like, that fucking stove needs to be deep cleansed right now. Yeah, no, it's normal. Like, yeah. usually people say, I'm going to quit my job. I'm <laughs> going to start this business. I'm going to become the greatest. And then wake up in the morning, you're like, fuck. All right. <laughs> Do you want to get some Chick-fil-A? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so at this 2020 Lamar Drive, both the boys said that Dean just had a bloodlust. Just a bloodlust. After their hiatus, you know, both of them came back and they were like, okay, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. Like, he is the source of our finances. And Dean just, he wanted to kill more boys. That's it. They even knew when he needed to kill another boy because he would be restless. He would have these, like, jerky movements. He would start smoking cigarettes. He never smokes or drinks. And he would constantly tell them, I need to do a new boy. So then we have William Ray Lawrence, who is 15 years old, and he is a good friend of Elmer's. So, um... Dean really liked him. He suffered multiple days of abuse. So it seems the accomplices said that when Dean really liked a boy, he would keep them alive as long as possible. And he eventually was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. So now we've got three burial sites that we know of. We've got the boat shed. We've got High Island Lake or High Island Beach. And then we have Lake Sam Rayburn. So he went by Billy. Billy Lawrence and he was forced to write a letter to his dad and he said that he'll be back one day because he's running away and he ended the letter and it seemed like he knew his fate because he wrote daddy I hope you know that I love you your son Billy and these families when they got it they were heartbroken but it was a situation where in Houston Heights there was just not a lot of money There was not a lot of money. Most of these parents, they were construction workers who were barely getting by. Houston Heights was not the type of place where you want to stay. So they believed it. Yeah, they were like, this is heartbreaking. I didn't know that they felt this way. I didn't know that they didn't like love me enough to like tell me. Or maybe they just thought this was the best for their future to get away from this place. Mm. So they kind of believed it. I mean, a lot of them still went to the police and were like, this is weird, you know, or maybe they didn't tell the police about the letter because that's what I would do. Listen, if my kid goes missing, I'm like, I don't think they're missing. I'm not going to tell the police I got a letter. Are you kidding? What I know about the police, they're not going to look for my kid ever. Yeah. They'd be like, what letter? I don't know what you're talking about. Go look for my kid, please. (laughs) And then there was Raymond Stanley Blackburn, who, um, 
This was only two weeks later after Billy Lawrence. He was strangled and buried at the lake too. He was hitchhiking home from Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yes, I'm saying it right. He's actually older. He wanted to see his wife and his babies. So this was like a random hit. This wasn't even like, oh, a friend of a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And then Elmer starts taking like a driving license class because he's like, you know what? I'm going to get my driver's license and then I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge. Maybe I can become a truck driver. Maybe I can move my entire family out of Houston because I've become a truck driver. So he starts taking these courses and he meets a 15-year-old by the name of Homer Lewis Garcia. And he tells them, hey, you're a cool kid. Like you're 15. I'm like around that age. Why don't you come over to my friend Dean's house and we can just drink, smoke weed, and it'll be fun. So he gets excited. He calls his mom and he's like, hey, I'm just going to be staying with a friend tonight. And he is never seen again. He was shot. He was uh, he bled out in Dean's bathtub and buried at the lake. Man, all of these people ever if they all just say, hey, I'm going to this guy's house. Yeah, that would be a solid, solid. But again, police doesn't care. Yeah. And then also like, I mean, they just all feel so normal. I don't know if, yeah. you know, it'd be normal to go out of your way to be like, hey, I know you don't know this person, but I'm going to this random person named Dean's house, you know, mm. just be like, I'm going to a friend's, right? Yeah. I think that's what makes it worse. It's like all of these people, all three of them, they are pretty normal. Like they look like normal kids other than Dean. And Dean looks like a normal 30 year old. He actually doesn't look like a pedo at all. I don't even know what a pedo looks like. I think they come in all shapes and sizes, but he doesn't have that stereotypical like movie pedo look mm-hmm. at all. So then we have John Sellers, 15 years old, and he was bound, shot to death and buried at the beach. And now this is a point of argument because some people say that he was not actually a victim and they say, and I quote, probably not. Mainly Houston officials say that he wasn't a victim, even though he's the same age as the victims. His grave was in High Island Beach with the rest of the victims. He was bound on the hands and the feet with the same type of rope as the other victims. And the autopsy reports indicate that he was possibly, probably sexually assaulted. But they used John Sellers to reduce the victim tally later on. So what? So a lot of the times he's not included. But um, then we have Tony Balch. Remember how they had killed his older brother? Yes. Now we have Tony Balch, Jimmy's little brother, on his way to get a haircut. He was raped, tortured, strangled, and buried at the lake. Why? That's insane. Then we have Charles Cobble and Marty Jones. And this is insane. Like, this is such a sad story. So... Charles had always been like a mommy's boy, Charles Cobble. Um, he hated going to school. He always needed to be with his mom. And his mom was so alarmed. There was a point where he, they were driving to school. She was about to drop him off at school. And he just started screaming, keep going. And she just kept driving. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay. I'm, see, I'm not stopping. We're going to keep going. It's going to be okay, Charles. And so she was like, that's weird. That's alarming. She takes him to a psychiatrist because she didn't understand. And she found out that he was deathly afraid that she would abandon him because because recently she had been super sick and hospitalized. So I think, you know, this young boy was like, oh, my God, my mom's going to die. My mom's going to die. And like, what am I going to do when my mom's going to die? So he felt the need to constantly be around his mom. Wow. There, people say that there was not one thing that didn't scare little Charles. You know, like he just was a very nice, sweet, timid kid. He it, it would show like anytime he would get scared or upset, he would be so upset that his physical body would react. He would have diarrhea or he would start throwing up like it was really, really bad. Now, Charles and Marty, their two friends. They were lured in by Elmer and they were tortured for two days. And there was um, some sick torture involved. So just a quick disclaimer. Each one had one ankle and one wrist bound to the same side of the torture board that we talked about. And they were told, hey, 
you guys are going to fight each other and whoever wins gets to live. If you beat the other person to death, your best friend, you get to live. And so, so hour, after hours of struggling, I don't think they like really tried to like beat each other. I think they were just, you know, going through the emotions of this psychological torture after hours of struggling with each other. Marty kind of won, I guess. And he was forced to watch Charles get assaulted and tortured and then shot. And then Dean made his way over to Marty and he was crying and he was screaming and he was assaulted again, tortured more, and then strangled to death. Now, Marty, when they dig up his body, when the police go to dig up all the bodies, Marty's cousin was a homicide detective. And he happened to be at the scene when Marty's bodies when Marty's body was found and he ended up committing suicide soon after. So there is the just, cousin? Yeah. Marty's cousin was a homicide detective and he was at the scene when they were digging up the bodies. So then we have finally the last victim. So this is now 29 victims. Um, James Stratton Dremala, who was 13. And he was riding his bike and he was just riding up and down Lamar Street and he was there to collect empty glass bottles so that he could resell them and make money for his family. And Dean was there. So they kidnapped him. And David said that he spent about 45 minutes with the boy. They were eating pizza before, you know, Dean attacked him. 29 young boys and men disappearing from like the same little two to three mile square radius area in Houston. Not even the city of Houston, but Houston Heights. In like two, three years. This doesn't make any sense. Like, how Is it are the near police... Houston? Houston Heights? It's inside of Houston. So oh. it's like a tiny little part of Houston. It's not even like saying Los Angeles. It's like saying the fucking um, Brentwood. Like, it's very specific. Like, just yeah. this tiny little area inside of Los Angeles, right? Uh-huh. And the police aren't doing anything. They're, they don't even have a database. They don't even have like, oh, all these boys are going missing. We got to do something. Like, is there something going on with all these missing boys? How they long don't... was the killing like three years wow mainly a lot of them were happening like the last year though so they were just like it's fine like nothing's going on and how did this all come to light because it doesn't seem like the police are doing anything about it it all comes to light with one 911 call and it happened august 8th of 1973 they call it the august 8 party because it was supposed to be a party So Elmer, who's 17 at this point, he invites his friend Timothy Cordell Curley, who's 19. And he's like, hey, Tim, you want to come to a party at my friend's house? So it seems like Tim was the intended victim. He was going to get $200 for, you know, giving his friend to Dean for him to do all of the nasty stuff too, right? Mm -hmm. And he accepts the offer. And Tim's like, yeah, I'm excited. Like, I heard about these parties. Like, I heard they're fun. Like, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to half paint? Like, this is going to be fun. And David Brooks was not there at the August 8th party. He was with his, you know, fiance at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's just... It's just Elmer, Dean, and Tim. And they're all sniffing these paint fumes. They drink alcohol till midnight. And before they play the handcuff trick, you know, Elmer's like, wait, can I get a moment with my friend? Because I want to go get sandwiches with him for like one last time. So Dean's like, okay, fine. So they go and they buy sandwiches in the middle of the night. So the, the, the victim, supposedly yeah. vit- victim. Yeah, Elmer and Tim, they just go buy sandwiches in the middle of the night. They're like, hey, Dean, is it fine if you just leave your murder for later? Because we need to eat. Uh-huh. So they go get sandwiches. Now, for whatever reason, after they go buy sandwiches, they go to Elmer's place instead of back to Dean's place, right? Uh-huh. And that's when they park the car. They get out. I think maybe Elmer had to pick something up from the house. And they see a friend of Elmer's that is allegedly Elmer had a lot of feelings for her. And she's actually Frank's fiance. Frank is one of the victims. You know how I said that he had a fiance? 
Uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, this is the girl. Her name is Rhonda Louise Williams, and she was 15 years old. And um, she was running out of the house, just crying, like tears streaming down her face. Like it was, it was insane. Like she was just crying, 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 crying. And everyone's like, "What's going on?" Like you know, Tim and Elmer are like, "Hey, what, what, what's happening to you? Like, what did something go wrong?" And she just says, "My dad got drunk again, and he started beating me again, and I'm so sick of it. Like I'm not going back in there. Like you can't make me go back in there. I'm never going back in there. I'm done." Mm-hmm. So Elmer's like, okay, well, if you don't have a place to stay, like, you can come with us. I can take you to my friend Dean's place and, like, we can probably crash on the couch. Uh-oh. So she's like, okay, I mean, I guess I was planning on running away anyway, so I guess that makes sense. Okay, like, thank you. So she gets into the car and they start driving to Dean's place and they arrive at around 3 in the morning. So at first, when Dean sees this trio of Elmer, his little associate, Tim, the supposed victim, and suddenly this random girl, he's like, what are you doing, right? Uh-huh. So he pulls Elmer to the side and he's like, you ruined everything. You brought a girl into this house and you ruined everything. And Elmer's like, whoa, Dean, like you need to calm down. Let me explain, okay? We went to go get sandwiches and then, you know, she was outside. Her dad was beating her. Like, I think she just needs a place to stay for the night. So Dean seemed to calm down. He was like, okay, well, I guess we can all just drink some beer and smoke some weed, yeah? And so they start drinking, they start smoking, and eventually Elmer and Timothy start sniffing more paint fumes. And Dean just sat there and watched them. He did not sniff any paint. It's a really weird phrase. Elmer will later go on to say that he didn't bring his friends here to be attacked. Maybe at the first initial sight of Tim he did, but like now with Rhonda, he was like, oh, this is just going to be like a regular night where no one gets murdered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of them pass out. Dean, while they're passed out, he hogties them. Including the girl? Yes, all three of them. So his little accomplice, Elmer, is tied up and gagged. Tim is stripped naked and gagged and tied up. And then Rhonda is tied up and gagged. Elmer starts waking up first. Right. And he's like, whoa, what's going on? So he's like muffling and he takes the gag off and Dean pulls him to the side and he says, I'm going to kill all three of you, but not after I rape and torture Tim. And he kept saying, man, you you blew it bringing that girl. I'm going to kill all of you. But first, I'm going to have my fun. So he walks over to Rhonda and keeps kicking her in the chest. It seems like Dean has a lot of anger towards Rhonda, right? And then he drags Elmer back into the kitchen, places a pistol on Elmer's stomach and threatens to shoot him. So for the next 30 minutes, it's a whole ass negotiation. Elmer's like, calm down, calm down. Like, I promise. What do you, what do you mean? You're going to kill me? Like, I love you, Dean. Like, we've been friends for so long now. D- Dean, what are you? Are you crazy? You can't kill me. I promise. Dean, I promise. If you just let me go, if you just let me go, I will help you. I will help help you torture and murder Tim and I'll bring more boys to you more boys than you've ever thought like please Dean so then Dean agrees and he unties Elmer and he drags both the victims Tim and Rhonda to the torture board on opposite sides so Tim is laying on his stomach naked and Rhonda is on her back on the other side of the torture board mm-hmm. now Dean's sick twisted plan is like he's like Elmer come here and Elmer walks in he sees the victims And he hands Elmer a knife and says, I think you should cut off Rhonda's clothes and I think you should assault her. So Dean's sick, twisted plan party was to both of them assaulting the victims on the same torture board on opposite sides. So Elmer starts cutting off Rhonda's clothes. Mm -hmm. Now, Dean is undressing and he starts assaulting Tim. Now, both victims at this point wake up. This is when they wake up, right? And Elmer removed Rhonda's gag and she says, is this for real? And he said, yes. And she said, well, are you going to do anything about it? And Elmer is like, okay, um, fuck. Dean, uh, fuck, uh, Dean, can I um, just, I don't really, 
I kind of want to do this in private. Do you think if I can take her to like another room? And Dean just ignores him because he's on top of Tim. And mm-hmm. so Elmer gets really pissed. He goes over. He grabs a pistol. And he points it at Dean. And he says, you've gone far enough, Dean. I can't go on any longer. And I can't have you killing all of my friends. And Dean is butt naked. He gets up. And he walks over to Elmer. And he kept saying, kill me. Kill me, Wayne, then. Kill me. And, you know, Elmer walks back a few steps because he's like, what the heck? And Dean kept saying, you won't do it. You won't do it, Wayne. You won't do it. And Elmer fires at him, hits him in the forehead. It failed to penetrate his skull. I don't know why. Now, Dean lunges towards Elmer. Elmer fires another two rounds, hit him in the left shoulder. Dean still isn't down. He runs out of the room into the hallway in the house. And that's when Elmer fires another three shots in his lower back and shoulders. And he slowly slid down the wall in the hallway. His face was facing the wall and he was completely naked. And that is where Dean Quirrell died. I don't know why I don't like that ending to him. Yeah, me either. And Elmer claims that his initial thought after killing Dean was, would Dean be proud of the way that I just behaved during this confrontation? Because he always trained me to react quickly and forcefully. And I I think I did that. Mm. Like he, it's, I don't know again, because Elmer is the more suspicious of the two accomplices. He seems to be uh, very talkative and very attention, you know, wanting and it seems like maybe he's trying to act like oh i was so groomed that i you know that was my first thought right because afterwards he untied the victims the victims get dressed and now they're sitting there like what do we do and elmer is like well i guess you guys could just leave and that's when tim's like um no i think we should call the police mm-hmm. so they sit there they call the police elmer calls 911 at 8:24 p.m and velma lines is the operator and he just blurts out y'all better come here right now i just killed a man and gave the address, 2020 Lamar Street or Lamar Drive or whatever. 8 p.m.? 8 a.m. the next morning. Okay. And so they're all waiting on the porch, just sitting outside, lined up. And while they're waiting for the police, Elmer mentions to Tim, you know, that wasn't like the first time I killed someone. And Tim's like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'd, I'd done it like four or five times. And they're all quiet. And then Elmer looks at them again and says, if you guys weren't my friends, I could have gotten at least 200 for you. And he's looking at Tim. So you think you think Elmer's turned because of the girl? Was that the tipping point? I don't really know what it was. Hmm. Maybe he also had a, this build up. Yeah, like a big build up moment. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Tim was a closer friend of his than any of the other victims, which really doesn't say anything about Elmer, just to let you know. Yeah. But um, maybe this was like his best friend and all the other victims were just like friends. I see. And he did like Rhonda. So I don't know Mm. if that has anything to do with it. So the police arrive at the scene and they immediately confiscate the pistol because they're like, we need the gun that you just said that you just shot someone with. So they grab the pistol. They place all three of the kids into the patrol car and they go back inside and they see Dean's body and they come back out and they read Elmer his Miranda rights. And he says, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. And they're like, "Okay, get back in the patrol car, you weirdo. And so they stick him back in there and his entire interrogation is just really strange. But first, inside the room, inside of Dean's house, we've got the torture board and the entire room was covered in thick plastic sheeting. 
What does that mean? Like, you know, the plastic wrap so that you don't get blood on the walls. Ah, and the, yeah. And they find his torture box in the backyard. They find his van. That's looking really sketchy. They find the only everything was like just basic furniture. He had like a table. He had like a couch, but nothing was really decked out at this new house. Right. Very little furniture. But he had this one portrait of what looked like Jesus with the word love. And they were just like, what? So while they're searching his house, Dean's mom calls. And Mary? They, yeah, Mary picks. Mary's calling. The police pick up and she's like, where's my son? I haven't talked to him in forever. Who are you? Why are you picking up the phone? And the police says, and I quote, lady, the only thing I can tell you is that you can't talk to Dean because he's dead. I don't think they knew that that was his mom. Maybe they did. So then now they have Elmer at the police station and they're interrogating him. And the police have no idea that there have been serial killings going on. They just think that Elmer just shot Dean. We've got a one-off murder case. He's the, you know, the murderer is here. It's a closed and shut case. They weren't even that interested. So Elmer kept saying, listen, I shot him in self-defense. Like he was assaulting Tim and Tim backed it up. And, you know, he wanted me to assault Rhonda. Rhonda backed up that story too. So all of this was making sense. Even Tim and Rhonda, they had no idea about the serial killings. So at this point... If Elmer didn't say one other word, I highly doubt we would know about Dean Coral, the candy man to this day. Right, right. Then right. he starts telling the police, no, seriously, it was self-defense because the past three years, man, it's been rough. Like me and David Brooks, we would get these little teenage boys. Sometimes they would be my friends and I'll bring them for Dean to just like rape and murder them. And, you know, I'm so sick of that. So and I knew that if I tried to get away, he would kill me. So that's that's what happened. And they're like, what? What do you what do you mean? You didn't. What did you just say? And he's like, well, OK, so initially I thought they were being sold to Dallas, not the city, but like someone in Dallas that was like a part of like the sex slave, you know, situation going on, like human trafficking. And uh, they were just going to do and I quote homosexual acts, sodomy. Maybe later they would kill them. I don't really know. But um, then I learned that he just killed them himself. And he always said kilt. He never said killed. He's a very like strong accent. So he said then he just killed them himself. And they're like, what? You, you mean you guys killed a bunch of people? Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't actively participate in like the torture part usually, sometimes, but not usually. And yeah, I think maybe I helped get like six or eight victims prior to their murder. He was 17? Yeah. Do you think also that he turned... I think maybe he's yeah. like 18 is coming mm -hmm. because he says something later, which is weird. Okay. So he's like, yeah, um, you know, that's what happened. They're mainly buried at the boat shed. There's a lake that we go to a high island beach. Oh, yeah. All of that. Now, the police are sitting there and initially they don't really believe it. They thought this was like a drug fueled story. They're like, OK, you've been huffing so much paint. You're out of your mind. But then Elmer starts listing these boys names. He's like, oh, what was that one kid? The one kid, the Balch kids. We took both of them. And they're like, the Balch kids. And they're like, oh, the other one, the one, the two brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We took them, too. And they're like, is that the dad that's been sitting outside the police station like every single day, like camping outside, harassing our chief? Well, we think it's harassment when it's really not. And they're like, these names match up with boys that we know to be missing. So they're like, OK, maybe we should go to the boat shed and just check it out. So they start, you know, Elmer takes them to the boat shed. And inside of the boat shed, they find a lot of suspicious stuff. They find a half-stripped car, a child's bike that belonged to one of the missing children because it was a homemade DIY bike. They find a large iron drum, water containers, survival supplies, just two sacks of lime, like two massive sacks of lime, large plastic bags filled with teenage boys' clothing. 
So, okay, they're like, we should probably start digging because that's, you know, they're buried here. That's what Elmer says. We found these things. It's very incriminating. We need to start digging. Now, usually the procedure with digging is that you're very thorough. You're like, this is, you're making evidence. You're like making sure it stays here. You got to log the evidence a certain way. You got to dig carefully because how do you know where the bodies are? You don't want to accidentally, you know, damage the bodies because this is very important in trial. Do you know how many trials could get tainted from mishandling evidence? Mm -hmm. But the police are like, all right, so every Everything inside the shed just toss it outside for now so they just straight up tossed out everything just outside the shed instead of logging it as evidence instead of making sure that no one contaminated it they're just like all right so toss it outside and let's start digging with metal shovels usually it's soft shovels but they were like get the metal ones we'll be efficient and not only did the police not dig they used what's called the trusty system which are prisoners who are allowed to work for no money it's pretty much not work it's like forced labor pretty much and so they get these two prisoners and they're like all right well you guys are gonna start digging and this was insane august in houston august in houston texas the only thing i hear about houston texas nonstop is the humidity and this was a metal shed it fully enclosed is it really hot huh hot humid and the smell oh my god of the dead people yes And that's why they don't want to do it. Yeah. Oh, my God. So they start digging and the two inmates, they were running out, just throwing up every two seconds. And then they would be forced back in to dig some more. They dig and they immediately find the body of a young blonde haired boy. And he was he I don't even think he was really decomposed at all. So that was the last victim, the 13 year old. He was laying on his side, buried beneath the layer of lime. And then they found more victims in varying different stages of decomposition. And all of their bodies were found wrapped in clear plastic. Looked like, you know, someone had gone through this. So during this time, the police start interviewing all the nearby boat shed owners. They're like, what's going on in the boat shed? Like, you know, what's what's the deal with these boat sheds? And the boat shed owner was like, oh, like I live nearby and I rent this place to Dean for like the past three years. He's been using this place and he would come like two to three times a week. Sometimes he would just work in there for like hours on end. I thought he was like making something. I don't know. And sometimes he would just drop things off. Sometimes he would pick things up. But you know what's odd now that I think about it? Every time it would start raining, people always complained that there was a weird smell. Just a weird scent. But recently, he's actually been asking me about renting another boat shed. Seems like he, you know, outgrew that space. He needs another one. And, you know, I didn't have one open. So I said, okay, well, I'll let you know, Dean. And you know what I, you know what I thought was really weird was that every time that all the neighborhood dogs, well, there's this one neighborhood dog and he lives outside and he just roams around. He would just always go to Dean's boat shed and just bark at the front door. I'm like, what's that dog doing? I never thought it was weird dogs knows what's up yeah maybe they probably smell it like but way better than we can but there's so many weird smells out there but i wonder if that dog was they smell human maybe yeah or a stray not a stray but um maybe had to scavenge for its own food mm. maybe but she was like yeah that dog is just like always out there <laughs> and i'm like what huh. So they get all these victims out. And again, this is how we're able to verify um, with obviously the accomplices statements that all the victims had, you know, evidence of sexual torture. A lot of them had mutilation or broken ribs. They had the two bags of the genitals and they dug all day till midnight and they found eight victims. One of them was actually crawled up in a fetal position. And then they find another additional nine victims and total they found um, 17 bodies. 
in this inside just the shed so this was actually two less than what elmer said would be in the shed he said it should be close to 19 but they shut down the operation they were just like it's fine we've done enough digging and one detective actually came forward and said yeah i'm pretty sure there's still bodies in that shed like i'm sure of it because i don't know why we stopped digging they just maybe it was like the heat maybe whatever it was they were just like yeah we're done that's enough for now now side note at the boat shed elmer's outside (laughs) Like while they're digging, he's just like outside and he's crying. And these reporters came and they filmed him using a police officer's phone to call his mom from outside the short storage shed. And he's just heard saying, Mama, Mama, I killed Dean. Now, at this point, I think a lot of the reporters and these news outlets, they didn't know the full story. They just knew that they're digging in this boat shed. They have no idea that all these bodies are found yet. This was like the beginning of the dig. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're like, OK, like whatever they're doing in this boat shed is besides us. And they actually reported about Elmer being a hero in the beginning a folk hero who slayed the dragon this evil man is you know assaulting his friend and forcing him to assault another friend and he says no this Mm. young little 17 year old kill them for his friends so then eventually they found out, you know, the bodies were found and Elmer had a lot more participation than just the August 8th party. He had a lot of participation in, you know, a lot of the murders itself. So David Brooks, he actually turned himself in, not not to say, hey, so I helped him lure boys. But because David Brooks' dad saw this on the news and was like, didn't you hang out with that guy? And I was like, oh, no, mm-mm, this is funny business. You're going to go in and tell them everything you know about this motherfucker because nope, 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 nope. And so he brought him in and David's like, yeah, I mean, I hung out with him, but nothing really. And he was just trying to play it cool. But they already had Elmer's statement where Elmer was like, oh, yeah, David Brooks. So then eventually he turned himself in. But he still to this day said, I never participated in the torture, the assault or the actual murders, just in luring people in and the disposal of the bodies. That was it. But you know they're going to die, so... Yeah, so I don't know. So both of them take them to the lake and the beach to look for bodies, and it gets even crazier. Like, you would think that it doesn't get crazier, but it does. So inside Dean's lakeside log cabin, because he had a log cabin that I never knew about, really anyone knew about, he had a second torture board, rolls of plastic sheeting, shovels, and sacks of lime. So that calls to the question, there's got to be more people, you know? Mm. There's got to be people that even David Brooks and Elmer don't know about. Like, there's more people, come on. So then David and Elmer, they go to High Island Beach. And this is where it's such a shit show, like chaotic. So they have reporters. They've got the police officers. They've got people digging. They've got families and just children that are just enjoying their day at the beach. And people start digging on the side. And people are just hanging out. At one point, a regular beachgoer, a regular citizen's chihuahua, jumped into one of the graves and started barking. Like there was just no process to this. So they find four bodies at the lake and they find another six bodies at the um, the beach. So leading to the total victims of 27 known. But then within a week, they found more. So later it becomes 20, 28 and then 29. So it's a little complex, right? And I'm going to tell you about David's statement real quick because it's wild. So David's statement includes some really heartless moments. He says most of them weren't good boys. This is probably a cruel way of putting it, but it sounds terrible. But most of them wasn't no great loss. You know, they was in trouble all the time. Dope fiends and one thing or another. I remember one kid. We all agreed after he was dead that he was super bad kid and his people wasn't going to miss him. No way. Why is he saying that? I don't know. 
He thinks this is going to help his case? I don't know. And he also, he also said, all in all, I guess there are between 25 to 30 boys killed and they were buried in three different places. So they find all the bodies. Now, this total 28 initially, later 29, was the worst killing spree in American history at that point. They'll later be surpassed five years later by John Wayne Gacy, um, who also used the same handcuff trick that these three did and he said that he was influenced by the houston mass murders and he killed 33 young boys and men but um yeah it was uh it's really bad now there's the question of there's got to be more bodies this doesn't make any sense so the candy apple lady remember at his candy factory they shared the space with a bunch of different people and one of them Mm. was a candy apple like store and one of the ladies her name is ruby jenkins and she kept going to the police and she was like you need to keep digging because i remember when i was working at that factory he had a digging phase remember we talked about that he would just go out in the middle of the night back of the candy factory and just start shoveling shit like that's not a normal hobby but we didn't think anything of it because we didn't know that he was a serial killer and at this point the term serial killer hadn't even been like officially coined so they 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 just called it houston mass murders right Uh. so she was like how was i supposed to know but um you should definitely dig behind the candy factory because i'm telling you there's people out there there's gonna be a ton of people so she remembers being there when the police arrived to dig and she said they were so bored they went out there tore up a few feet of dirt and then quit And they kept telling her and she kept saying, you got to search more. And they said, lady, this is old cement. There can't be bodies under there. And she said, you're wrong. And they're like, no, you're wrong, lady. And when she talked to NBC about it, she was like, also, they started insinuating some weird things about my life. Like they kept saying that my ex-husband and Dean were dating and that's why I want some shit to go down. And they were just like, what? So it just seems like the police were really, really lazy in all of this. They never searched in any of the other homes, backyards. They never searched the candy factory. They never searched in the wooded area that all of the former candy factory workers remember him digging in the middle of the night. They never searched the pouting room that he dug up and then laid cement on. And then out of nowhere, a week into searching for bodies, they called it off. They called off the search. They said no more at High Island Beach or the lake or the boat shed or anywhere. We're not going to keep searching for more bodies until we receive definitive information on the location of other graves. Those are like public statement. What makes this more infuriating is that even David and Elmer believed that there were more bodies that they didn't know about and they didn't know where. So let's talk about all that Houston hate because there was a lot of Houston hate during this time. And I mean, it sucks because the government really has nothing to do with the people. It's like the shittiest thing when you're like, you're from Houston. Oh, my God. Remember when they did blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, remember when the government did that? I just happened to live there. What do you mean? Like, why are you acting like I had a decision in any of this? Right. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to make it seem like people were shitting on Houston people. But um, there was a lot of drama. So a Houston radio reporter said that a detective told him that once the body count surpassed mass murder record, all the excavations were halted. They said no more. We already passed the record. Because think about it. If you pass the worst serial killings in America by one or two, Okay, people are twisted. But if you pass it by so much more, then the question becomes, how did you not catch this? Like, what's wrong with you? It's no longer about the serial killer. It feels like it'll be more about the police. Because if it's only like one more than the last serial killings, then you could be like, listen. And I believe at the time it was a Californian. They're like, listen, California didn't catch it. We didn't catch it. There's some sick, nasty, twisted people out there. But if you surpass it by so much more, it's like, whoa. How do you not know what's going on, right? And the whole world blamed Houston. When I say the whole world, I'm talking the Soviet Union. 
put out a little newspaper and they said indifference of Houston, murderous bureaucracy. They said the inaction of the police is the most astounding aspect of the story. Not only did the Soviets have a little dig at the Houston Police Department, but also the Vatican. Yeah, the Pope, the Vatican. They were also like, um, we are in the domain of sadism and demonism. The two monsters, sex and drugs, have generated a new and different being, monstrous, demonic. And they were just kind of crapping on Houston, Texas and the Houston Police Department and all of this. Like, how does someone get away with this? How were they only caught by accident? It wasn't the fact that you had this entire task force dedicated to the Candyman. It was just like, you got a call. Even if Elmer was like 2% smarter, no one would know about this. Like people agreed that if Elmer didn't tell you straight up, by the way, we did some mass murders, you would have no idea. You would just say that was a murder of self-defense of Dean Quarrel and moving on. Exactly. Like what? So reporters were sent from all over, like Pakistan, Japan, all the way to Houston just to report on murder city, murder town, all of that jazz. And the police chief, Herman Short, the police chief of the Houston Police Department, he did a press conference and he said, it's not my job to satisfy the Soviets. That's the silliest thing I can think of. I wonder if the Soviets would like if I write a little story about the number of people the government has killed over there, taking their property, annihilating them. I don't believe we've had anything like that happen in Houston in the last several days. And they're like, what? (laughs) The last several days. I don't even know if that was to make a point or doesn't make a point. And a ton of the police officers were on his side and they were quoted with saying these kids, most of them, they knew what they were getting into. They were male whores out for some quick money. Those kids, they're what you call little turds. Most of them, several had police records, several had some nutty parents. And it is what it is. And they kept suggesting during this press conference that the boys were still runaways. The parents did not do enough to look after them. The boys ran away. And then eventually, you know, this creepy dude comes around and they got taken advantage of because they ran away because their parents didn't take care of them. I mean, the amount of victim blaming in this, I get. So the mayor of Houston defended Uh this. Defended the cops? And said the police can't be expected to know where a child is if his parents don't even know. That's they, exactly why this happened. Yeah. Because of that attitude. And they said that the links between the victims, you know, they're all they're all just myths created by the media. That's what they said. They said it's it's random. It's random crime. Just a bunch of runaways. And then, you know, the candy man comes along and the governor of Texas was on board, too, because they tried to change the narrative from Houston Police Department is a butthole to Listen, if you are a runaway in Texas, please call your parents and just let them know you're alive and well. So they were pushing this narrative of bad things happen to runaways, which is why you got to make sure your kids don't run away. And it's not because the police department is, you know, ass. It's because, you know, bad things happen to runaways. Now, the Houston Police Department is... um was not loved at the time for a lot of different reasons, even before this whole thing came to light. So a lot of interviews said that it was widely common at the Houston Police Department that before you work on a case, you ask, oh, the person murdered, were they white or a insert N word? And that would dictate how much time that they spent on the case, if any. So if they are black or a minority or Hispanic, they spend no time. If they're white, you work on it, maybe an hour, maybe a day, max two to three days. That's it. Rule number one, two, and three of the Houston Police Department. Murders of prominent Houstonians or rich 
Houstonians never let an uniformed patrolman work on the mor- murder involving important people. You got to have like the top level detectives, okay? You got to get the crime labs involved. You can't just have a regular police officer work in this case. You need the detectives. Rule number four certain neighborhoods just cut the corners, murders go undetected, unsolved, it's fine. So if you were a rich person or a prominent person, they would give you the whole works so that you would never complain because you wouldn't know what's happening in the other side of town. You'd say, my sister went missing. They pulled out the crime lab. They got forensics. They got this. They got that. You know, I had 25 detectives working on the case. Wow. Amazing. The Houston Police Department. Amazing. Let's fund this bitch more. Meanwhile, all of these poor people, I mean, they said the unsolved murder cases, pretty much they were all black victims or poor white victims. And they would never get any press because Houston at the time, there were so many murders. Why would people care? There were so many murders of prominent people and not prominent people. So if anything, they're going to talk about the prominent murders. So then the police chief does something even worse. Well, maybe not even worse, but to make things worse. Mm -hmm. He starts raiding gay bars. He starts full on just attacking gay people. He's like, everyone, you know, there's a link between homosexuality and pedophilia. That's what he said. He said, there's a link. Like, this is what's going on. Shut we got to get, we got to, we got to calm down the homosexuality up in Houston because they're all going to be pedophiles. <laughs> That's so dumb. I can't even tell you how dumb it is. So an activist had to come forward and said, it could just easily have been the bodies of young girls that were unearthed. If the victims had been females, would there be a city-wide campaigning against heterosexuality? I think that's a good question to ask. And also, are you insinuating that gay men are like Batman? Like, how do you get away with shit like this unless you are so bad? Like, this has nothing to do with sexuality. Because he's implying, oh, well, there's a link. But that still doesn't answer. Like, There's what? a link that you didn't fucking do any work. Yeah. Or there's reported someone missing. So they'd rather say there's a link than say, oh, yeah, I didn't do any work. So it's kind of insinuating that gay people are like Batman. Like they can just commit all these crimes. They're just way better at committing crimes. Like what? What are you even saying? None of this makes sense. So they started holding these rallies in church. I don't know if rallies is the right word, but it's the only one that comes to mind right now. Um, They started having these like rallies in church and people started talking about how they didn't feel safe until they rid their communities of all suspicious characters, a.k.a gay people not murderers not child predators but gay people those were what they called suspicious characters so then someone who was listening to this stood up and said dean wasn't suspicious looking neither was elmer neither was david brooks maybe you're wasting your time trying to figure out who's suspicious and everyone in the crowd gasped and they said there's a there's a homosexual in our church they didn't even shut the front like, door. Like it didn't even ring in their heads. They didn't even try to think about it for a second. They were just like, <gasps> "This thing almost sounds like a fake yeah. world." It's uh, wow. And so obviously there was this narrative of just runaways and the gay community. Like those were the communities that were like, it, "This is the reason," and it worked. Like it worked. What Nobody really talked about at that time. It was it wouldn't be until later that people would talk about how the police really just screwed up. At first, people were just in so much fear about their kids running away or I don't know, the gays. <laughs> They're just like, oh, I don't know. Like, I can't. It's so hard to imagine being in that time frame and like people really thinking like that. I'm like, uh-huh. OK, I can't even explain that thought process. But they were just so scared that the Houston police kind of got away with it. Mm. Like no one was really putting that much heat onto it. Now, let's talk about the families of the victims, because this is where it gets really intense. 
obviously they're super mad at the police department. I mean, most of them were told that their kids are runaways. They're not worthy of investigation. How do you not see the trend of these young boys going missing from the Houston Heights neighborhood? Like, it just doesn't make sense. 11 of the 29 victims went to the same junior high school. 11. So it wasn't even like, oh, you went to that school. They went to that school. So it's like, maybe you guys don't talk to each other. But it was like, come on. We knew something was going on. Houston Heights is a two by three mile area. How do they all go missing? And you just don't think some shit's going down like it doesn't make any sense now houston heights prior to this like i said it's not a great area in terms of wealth like they don't have tons of wealthy people they don't have tons of um companies there but they have a pretty close-knit community the way that people describe it is that a lot of criminals live there but they wouldn't commit crimes there so their crime rate was low like you don't shit where you eat type of situation and also there was nothing to steal from the people like you if you try to jack something from your neighbor's house like what could you take no one had anything Mm -hmm. and everyone was just kind of nice to each other there was this little community and everyone seemed to be very sweet the only major criminal that was operating in houston heights prior to the Candyman was the heights phantom sounds scary it was a man who would in the middle of the night run up to your door, knock on it, mm-hmm. and you would open it, and he'd be butt naked, and you would scream, and he would run off cackling into the shadows. And he was arrested. Now, when he was arrested, nobody could ID him because they didn't remember anything above the waist. So he was immediately <sighs> released. And the police just told him, hey, you need to get it together. Like, stop running around butt naked. You're kind of creeping people out. And that was it. There was like really not a lot of crime in Houston Heights. So you can't even use the excuse of there's so much crime. How are we supposed to know that these were linked? Mm -hmm. It's like there's not even that much crime. Now, to make things worse for the family, David's confession was made public before tons of the family members were even notified that their kids were murdered. Mm-hmm. A lot of them still thought that they were, you know, runaways. So they were getting these calls from neighbors coming over, offering their condolences, giving them flowers. And they're like, what do you mean? What's going on? And so they're like, what the heck? Now, one of the parents, um, Johnny DeLome is a victim. His dad, he brought in pictures of Johnny and demanded the police show David Brooks. And they came out and I think the police had no idea that this was Johnny's dad because they said, yeah. So he said that, and I quote, yeah, I killed this punk too. And that's how he found out that his son was murdered. A police gave him the message. Oh, yeah, that guy said, yeah, I killed this punk, too. And he was like, what? Can you imagine you're at the police station and then you're like, yeah, I killed this punk, too. Yeah. And then the police (laughs) relay that message to someone that just walked in. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I can tell him that. That's fine. I don't know who this person is bringing this picture up in here, but I'm just going to tell him. Now, like I said, Jimmy's parents, they ID'd him because his leather jacket was buried next to him. Marty Jones, his cousin, was there and ended up committing suicide not long after, after um, the bodies were dug up. So the Homer parents, they were actually returning from a trip from South Texas because one of the victim's grandmas just had passed away. She had a debilitating stroke after hearing the news that her grandson was missing. Uh So they just buried his grandma. And when they got back from the funeral, the police were there. Uh So they're like, what's going on? Like, we just got back from, you know, burying my mom, my son's grandma. And they said, well, your son's dad. He's been murdered. And the mom just could not sleep for days. Like, she just kept dreaming that her son had been buried alive and he was trying to crawl his way out. And then we have Josephine, who is Frank's mom. And she has spent the last one and a half years burning a candle in the home so that, you know, if her son comes home, he knows that she's been waiting and there's light and there's hope. And he would just come inside. And she had already lost another son during this time, Ronnie. Um, She accidentally ran over him in front of the elementary school. So she was really, really waiting. And she had put all of her hope into, you know, Frank's going to come back. I'm going to get one of my boys back. 
Uh-huh. And then she was told that he was murdered. And then we have Betty Cobble, another mom of a victim. And she grieved. She was so sad when she heard. And then she decided, you know what? I, I, need, to, I need to do something because all I think about and all I dream about is my baby boy being murdered. So she went back to work, which was delivering flowers. That was her job. And then she ended up just delivering flowers to all the other funerals of the victims. And she eventually had to quit because her boss, who is a super nice elderly woman, would ask these insane questions. She would say, it may be morbid, but have they found the boy's clothes? And so she's like, I don't think that's appropriate. Like, if you watch the news and you would find out that all the boys were buried naked. So, I mean, there's your answer. Like, what's wrong with you? And Uh the elderly woman would just keep asking more questions about her son's death. And she was like, all right, I'm going to quit. So she had to quit her job and try to find a new one. And then we have Mr. Lawrence. And this is so sad. So he is another dad of one of the victims. And he anytime his other son calls, he ends it and starts it. He'll pick up and say, son, I love you. They'll have a conversation and he'll end it. Son, I love you. And he kept all of his son's belongings. And he said, that's all he had to his name. And I wish I could have done him better because it wasn't a lot of belongings. So Mr. Lawrence is actually really... um, really just a nice person because i can't imagine doing this but he went to elmer's mom and said i have no animosity toward you or the boys and i feel so sorry for what's happened to you too and if there's anything i can do to help you just call me and i mean it from the bottom of my heart and she just broke down and started crying because imagine like i'm sure she tried to raise her son right i mean from the story that i could get so far it seemed like She had an abusive relationship with her husband. She left. She tried to raise her kids right. And then Elmer fell into this group of friends. Mm -hmm. And this is how it escalated. So I I mean, it's really big of him. I can't imagine doing that. Yeah. And so she just broke down, started crying. And one day he gets pulled over. Mr. Lawrence, he gets pulled over. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's got these black eyes. He's just crying. Like, I'm sure he looks wrecked. Right. He looks tired. He looks exhausted. His license plate sticker was expired. And so the police pull him over. Yeah, the police. (laughs) So they pull him over and they're like license and registration. So he gives them the license and he's the police is like, ah, your name looks familiar. I wonder why. And Mr. Lawrence says, well, I guess, I mean, I've been on TV and newspapers the past couple of weeks. My, my boy was one of them that was murdered. And the police looks at him and says, oh, yeah, I hear something like that every day. And just little shoved his little ticket in. He said, oh, yeah, I hear something like that every day. Like, oh, yeah, stop making excuses <sighs> and gave him a ticket. Danny Yates parents, they moved out of Houston to get a fresh start after this and I mean, I don't even know. A lot of the times I hear that it's so hard for parents to grieve the loss of a kid because how do you even grieve something like that? Like you don't plan that. So they ended up getting divorced soon after, after they moved away. Then the Waldrop brothers, their father, the construction worker who waited outside the police station for like eight months, well, he relocated to Atlanta and he read the confession while he was in Atlanta and he realized that he was working on an apartment complex directly across the street from Dean's place. What? Like, what do you mean? He was, he's a construction worker, so he was working on building a building across the street oh. from Dean's, Dean's apartment. And he said, maybe he had them in the apartment when I went to work. Maybe they were being tortured right next door, and I didn't know it. And then we have the Balch family. They lost two sons to Dean, and then they eventually lost another son to a car accident. And they had a newborn son, and they said they're going to keep... A guard posted 24 hours a day. And I laugh because, you know, it seems like they're trying to be positive. 
But like, I can't imagine like, mm-hmm. then we have Jimmy's mom. She just couldn't really grieve well. So she, every time she sees a hitchhiker who happens to be a teenager, she would start screaming in the car. That's Jimmy. We've got to turn around. And the dad who just wants to keep the peace every single time turns around so they can verify that it's not Jimmy, even though they know where Jimmy is, you know? And one time she grabbed a gun, grabbed their younger sister, Pamela, Jimmy's little younger sister, and she dragged her into the back bedroom and she would not open the door for anyone. Eventually, the SWAT teams had to be called in and she fired a shot at the ground and she screamed, they're not going to steal Pamela away from me like they did my Jimmy. They're not going to steal her away. And she was sent to a psychiatric unit and she was just never the same. There was also a bunch of missed burials. So the parents that demanded to see Johnny's body, they showed them just bones. And so many of Johnny's bones were missing. They were like, how do you have like a chunk of the skull that's missing? Like, these are his bones. And they're just like, yeah, well, it's your son. They were like, what? How am I supposed to get closure from this? You know, and David Hillengeist and Gregory Maliwinkle, both of their bodies were sent to Atlanta, Georgia. Because the coroner believed that this was Jerry and Donald Waldrop. And it wasn't weeks until Houston realized we sent the wrong boys. So the families in Houston, I mean, I think the craziest thing, though, that everyone, not just the families of the victims, they kept saying is, you know, my child would have gotten into that van. Are you kidding? Like any child would have gotten into that van. If they're walking down the street and a kid came by that they went to school with, had known all of their lives, they would have gotten in that van. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like this whole stranger danger of like if a stranger comes up in a van and it's like you want some candy like say no it's like these people knew our kids some mm-hmm. of them grew up around Dean Coral like what do you mean this is the fact that you can't even trust the children that your children are running around with like how do you trust anyone and one of the family members said it really well they said Dean Coral didn't just kill 27 boys he killed 27 families so Dean had a funeral what So Dean's funeral, because he was a veteran, even though he never saw any action, he was a veteran. So they gave him a veteran funeral and they placed an American flag on the coffin and everything. And everyone around the world was confused. A lot of people, you know, were interviewed and said, like random strangers would be interviewed and be like, did you hear about what happened in America? And they said, you know, the American way is interesting. (laughs) Like after all of that, you're like, here's the American flag. Are you shitting me? Yeah, so the service lasted less than 15 minutes. No one really cried for him, but people were fucking shocked that he was given the whole works of like a veteran's funeral. What do you mean? What do you mean? And then Mary, the mom, was at the funeral. She made an open statement to Elmer and David Brooks. My heart is heavy with sorrow, not only for the loss of my son, but also for the loss of all the boys and people whose lives they've touched. To David and Wayne, you may have the best defense lawyer the world can offer, but your best defense is God. You can lie. You can plan. You can plant evidence to shift the blame to the one who cannot defend himself. But you surely know that your days on this earth are numbered. Whether it is behind bars or walking the streets, we are not concerned with your bodies, but we are concerned with your souls and the truth will set you free. Dean is innocent. He did things for you that you could not do for yourself, but you cut off the hand that fed you. Dean cannot help you now. Would he have rented the boat shack to bury bodies in and still loan it to friends and family to store furniture in and help them move in? Last time I talked to him, he kept talking about dodging someone. He didn't say who. I thought he might have owed someone money. Dean only wanted to live and let live. Also, the torture boards were planted. 
Like literally in the same order. Like she was like, Dean only wanted to live and let live. Also, the torture boards were planted. Now you're probably wondering, okay, like how does this mom know that her son is innocent? Well, shortly after the news broke, she called up a psychic in Dallas, Texas, and the psychic told her that Dean had been used by others, and they examined the date and hour of her son's birth and the birth charts and said he couldn't have possibly done it. Also, he can't be homosexual. So then she went to another psychic, and they said that his only involvement was he knew something he didn't tell soon enough. And then another psychic said that he's completely clear, robed in white. He has an aura of white around him. Maybe he's in heaven. Now, you can't go to heaven if you just murdered 29 people. So she also compared him to Jesus. Oh, no. Because he was born Christmas Eve and her name is Mary. Oh, no. So she's because a lot of people were comparing Dean to the other serial killers, you know, and all these sexual sadists. And she said, you want to compare Dean with somebody? Get this. In three hours and 15 minutes, Dean would have been a Christmas baby. He lived to be 33 years old. Side note, Jesus was crucified at 33 years old, um, I believe. So his mother, his mother's name is Mary. He was a bachelor electrician. He loved kids. When they got on his nerves, he moved on. He was gentle and he was crucified in the newspapers. Mary, I have no words. So then we have the trials. We have Elmer Wayne Henley, who was charged with six counts of murder. David Brooks, four counts of murder. Elmer was not charged with Dean's murder because uh, they considered it self-defense. So they had separate trials and Elmer pled not guilty and he didn't testify. They had a bunch of witnesses. They had his written confession. I mean, he literally led the police to the body. So there wasn't much that the defense could do. And the lawyers just objected to everything. Anytime the prosecutor brought up something, the defense attorney was like, objection, your honor, over 300 times during one trial. And every single time the judge said, overruled like sit your ass down like what do you all you can't say nothing so all you're saying is objection your honor like it was just really really intense and a lot of families had to leave the entire courtroom when they were reading his confession because it was just it was bad i mean he was naming names he was talking about each of the victims like you don't want to hear that so the closing argument the prosecutor actually apologized for not being able to seek the death penalty because he is underage this was the most extreme example of man's inhumanity to man that i have ever seen Scene, is what he said so the jury deliberates for an hour and he was found guilty he was sentenced to six consecutive 99 year terms of imprisonment so like 600 freaking years now so the underage didn't matter yeah when it was this bad okay, okay. they couldn't seek the death penalty though oh okay so he appealed and they, he said, well, I was denied a, tr a hearing for like an evidentiary hearing. He also said that the jury hadn't been sequestered, like they weren't kept in a place where they couldn't get to the press. They couldn't read these things. They also said that we wanted to move the trial out of San Antonio, where it was less known about. Like we wanted to get out of this area. We also didn't want, you know, news media in the courtroom, all of that. So they were granted a new trial. And the judge or the lawyer tried to argue, we can't have the torture board in there. We can't have the torture box brought in because those are Dean's belongings, not Elmer's belongings. They also tried to get his written testimony taken off because they said it just didn't make sense or whatever. They tried to argue that. And the judge was like, no. So they had another trial. The jury deliberated for 90 minutes. And he was again convicted of six murders and sentenced to six concurrent 99 year terms. And it's probably shocking to Elmer because while he was being interviewed by all these journalists while they were digging up bodies at the beach and the lake and all of that, they said, you know, how do you feel about all of this? And he stated, I know I'm going to be sent away and I'll probably be out when I'm like 40. Maybe they'll take me to the army. So I think he was really hoping that he could play this like, oh, it wasn't me. Yeah. 
Now, Elmer does, he do be doing a lot, like in prison. He do be doing the most. So out of the two, David Brooks, like he gave his written confession and then he fell off the radar. Like he was like, bye, went to prison. Elmer, I mean, any chance he got, he was like, I'll talk to you. Yeah, I'll talk to you about it. I'll tell you everything. So when he gets to prison, um, yeah, it was really intense while he was in prison. The first couple of days he had to be in solitary confinement because they put an opening bid on his head for $700. The, the prisoner? Inmates, yeah, they were like, if you kill him. You know, you're going to get $700. Why? I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> All okay. I can think is like a game. <laughs> I mean, but also, you know, crimes against children in prison. Okay, We've okay, had that conversation. Right. Maybe that's why. Now, he loves the attention. And his mom is kind of annoying, too. So she always complains that he's cold in prison. He has nothing to wipe his nose with. He's not fed enough. He's hungry. And she said, I just want him taken care of. That's all. Now, even before prison, he loved telling police departments about all of his stories. The only sensitive topic that the police noted was about homosexuality. He just kept trying to overcompensate. Every time it would come up, he would tell the cops, oh, man, I've had a girlfriend and we did it. And oh, man, I would kill to do that one more time, you know, but I'm going to I'm going to prison. In an interview, they said, Wayne, how do you feel about this whole ordeal? And he said, pretty grotesque. The interviewer goes, what do you mean by that? Do you read the dictionary? So like she's trying to be like, well, like describe, elaborate. And he's like, you don't know what the word grotesque means? Just like real sassy. So then in 1997, a local art gallery said that they were going to be showing collections of paintings that Elmer made in prison. Landscapes, flowers, buildings, portraits. Now, friends and families of the victims, they stood out all night opening night with signs that said you know hang henley not his art you know not his art but still 21 of 23 paintings quickly sold shut up and when you know he was asked about like what do you think about all these people who are boycotting your artwork and say that it's not art and that you're just a killer he said all i ask is that they look at my artwork first it may be the only contribution i can give back to society now here's what's crazy elmer is eligible for parole He's been eligible since 1980 and he has been denied every single time. And the next date would be in October 2025, where he will be 69 years old. Now, David Brooks trial, he was indicted for four murders, but only tried for one. And the whole defense was that, you know, he didn't commit any of the murders. He just assisted. He was an active participant, but mm -hmm. um, he didn't murder anyone. And again, the jury only deliberated for like 90 minutes, found him guilty and sentenced to life. He showed no tears. Meanwhile, his wife was like in tears, just like bawling in the back of the courtroom. He appealed. It didn't work. And he eventually passed away in May 28th of 2020 when he was 65 years old because he had multiple illnesses, including COVID. Huh. Yeah, he died of COVID. Interesting, right? Now, Rhonda and T Tim are the two victims from the August 8th party. The survivors, right? Yes. Rhonda says she goes to therapy for uh, PTSD. And she said, whatever evil was in Wayne, there was still some good in him. Finally, the good one and Wayne saved my life. And he saved Tim's life too. Wayne killed the devil. So it seems like she's like a very loving person and trying to look on the bright side of things. Now, Tim, um, he gave a rare interview and he says, I have two choices, either accept it and move on or I kill myself. And after that interview, he just kind of spiraled down. And then in March of 2009, he passed away in South America from a heart attack. But a lot of people said that Tim was just never the same.
And the crazy thing is a lot of this has been forgotten. It's not really widely talked about. Um, the speculation is that the media loves killers who are reachable, killers who can do media interviews like Ted Bundy, um, prison interviews. They write to you from mail from jail. You know, they have trials. You've got pictures of them at trial looking a certain way, making certain faces. Mm. I think just, you know, Dean himself, he just died. Nobody right. got his version of the events. Nobody could hear it from the horse's mouth. And then... The case just kind of got forgotten. Now, I don't want to say forgotten because I know there's a lot more cases that don't even get the time of day, that don't even get, you know, one article written about them. But in terms of just the amount of damage that this did to the Houston community and the world, I just feel like I, I didn't know much about it until I got into a deep dive. So let me know. What are your thoughts? This is probably my most intense mini-sode. But I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast and I'll see you guys on Wednesday. Bye.